and we can praise him. If we didn't have his generous grace in our lives, we would, well, we'd be lost and maybe not even know it. Thank God for giving us his son. Well, a number of us were at the church picnic last week. It was a neat time. I love that big grill that always shows up at those things. It's a man grill, you know. We can cook hundreds of, hundreds of patties and all of that. We cooked all the meat, and I think we had very little left over. And I want to just kind of set up a, a, a hypothetical situation. Let's say you were at the picnic, and somebody came up to you, could be a person of any age, and the person who came to you was a new believer, somebody who just recently put faith in Christ. And so they've got lots of questions about what it means to follow Jesus. And they have this new sense of calling in, their, in, in his or her life. And so they're, they're looking to you for some advice. And so they, they put a question out there to you. And maybe this sounds like a little far-fetched, but it really isn't. Here's the question. They, they say to you, what is the relationship between happiness, being happy, and holiness? Now that I'm a Christian... What is the relationship between how am I supposed to be happy and what is this thing about being holy that I keep bumping into in the scriptures? From the Old Testament to the New, it says, Be holy, for I am holy, says your God. And yet, there's this joy that we have in Jesus. And so, are we pursuing happiness now or or holiness or joy? And I think a young Christian mind has honest questions about those things. I think I would say this. The relationship between happiness and holiness and the life of a believer is something of this order. If a Christ follower pursues happiness alone, just the pursuit of happiness, just, just to be happy in the day and the moment, but regardless of, of anything else, just the, the quest to be happy, kind of an American idea there, uh, that person's likely going to miss the call to holiness, growth in Christ-likeness or holiness. And yet, if a person pursues Christ-likeness, which is the same thing as holiness, happiness will follow. In fact, something better than that will follow. The Bible calls it joy. Joy, which is supreme. We can have joy no matter what's happening around us or within us. In the worst of circumstances, a believer can have joy. But so, let me just rephrase it or say it again. If as a Christ follower, my quest in life is just to live to be comfortable and happy and pleased with my situations in life, I will forfeit spiritual growth, growth in holiness, in Christ-likeness. And frankly, I won't be very happy because life isn't really made to be around, to revolve around me. But if, as a Christ follower, I choose to go the path of discipleship, I want to follow Jesus and, and learn to emulate the fruit of the Spirit by His grace, love, joy, peace, patience, all of that, to become more like Christ, to grow in holiness, happiness will be a part of that. Joy will be a part of that. Jesus prayed for his followers to have his joy complete in them. He wanted it to be fulfilled in them. And that, that didn't mean that their lives would be easy or that their lives would be comfortable. If anything, they were quite the opposite. They were persecuted, those who followed Jesus in that first century, as they have been throughout the ages. Jesus, of course, is the zenith of, of holiness because he's the Son of God. He was devoted to his mission, not to being comfortable, not to being just at ease with life. In fact, he 
looked around him at nature and he said, you know, the, the, the foxes have holes of the earth to spend the night in. The birds of the air, they have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was not to, devoted to his creature comforts, but he was devoted to mission. And of course, he's our best example of what it means to follow Christ, is to look at Christ. And how did he live? He didn't live for self, but he lived for the mission that he was called to live. He was already holy, of course, in perfection. So let's bring it back down to our level a little bit more. Uh, the Apostle Paul, for instance, did he live to, to please himself, to live a safe life, an easy life, a life that basically just revolved around himself? Of course he didn't. He wouldn't have written most of the New Testament if he hadn't gone through the difficulties that he went through, that he endured in his life. He was a man yet who was still full of joy, wasn't he? He wrote the letter to the Philippians, for instance, which is one of the prison letters. He wrote it from prison, and he gives us twice those very familiar words. He says, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. How could he say that? How could he feel such joy? Really, rejoice comes from joy. How could he experience that when he's sitting in a prison cell? That's because God's joy transcends circumstances. That's because a life that is pursuing the call of God knows joy even when circumstances are difficult and painful. Now that's hopeful to me because I think a lot of days in our lives are tough. For all of us, there are a lot of tough days in the life of following Jesus, in this journey we're on, a lot of tough days. But they can be joy-filled. They can have notes of joy in them. They don't all have to be just tiresome and laborious. We have in the Old Testament book of Jonah an example, an example that I think illustrates a, a choice, a choice to be happy or a choice to be holy. If you know anything about the book of Jonah, uh, it's a very interesting book. I think God preserved it for us for a reason, probably mo multiple reasons, but one of the reasons that I think it's preserved for us is here's an example in the life of Jonah of how not to live the life of following God. Because Jonah, why? Because Jonah, though he was called to be a prophet, he had a heavenly mission. He was called to be a prophet of the living God. He was a reluctant prophet. And he was really a little more concerned, not a little, frankly, let's call it what it is. He was a lot more concerned for his own happiness than he was about holiness. He was more concerned for his agenda than God's agenda for his life. And so we can learn good, good lessons from a bad example. We really can if we, if we want to see that. Good lessons from a bad example. That's what we really have here. You know, Jonah, he, uh, I'm just going to talk turkey with you. He hated a group of people that we don't know a lot about today unless you check history, the Assyrians. The Assyrian nation was a, was a, a powerhouse in, uh, in ancient history. In fact, after Jonah's lifetime, about 200 years later, the Assyrians would come down from where they lived and they would ransack nor the northern kingdom of Israel. They were enemies in Jonah's day. And God, in Jonah chapter 1, puts this big mission in front of this young prophet. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, one of their leading cities, the leading city of your enemies, and I want you to tell them that in 40 days I'm going to wipe them out if they don't repent of the evil in their land. Well, Jonah wasn't interested in, in them finding mercy. He, wasn't, he was really what I would call a spiritual racist. He knew that as a, as a follower of Yahweh, a follower of the Lord, that he, he knew the way of the, the, the true God. He had a relationship with the one true God, that Israel had 
the an understanding of, of who God was, and they had the revelation of God. They had the law and the prophets, and, and they had the wisdom books. And he, he wasn't interested in sharing that with anybody. He loved the grace of God as far as it touched his life. But he looked at other people who were far from God, a Gentile nation, such as the Assyrians, and he said, burn them up. I hate them. You want me to do what? Go and tell them to repent? He resisted the mission. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and remember he lives in northern Israel, in the kingdom of Israel, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, that's the city of the Assyrians, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. God doesn't care just about a few nations of the world or a few individuals of the world. He cares about everybody. And he sees everything that's happening in, in life and in the world. But verse 3, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish, which we believe was on the coast of Spain. So think of where Israel is. He's in the north. Instead of going over to Assyria, he goes down to Joppa, which is a port city near modern-day Tel Aviv. Now, Tel Aviv, or Joppa, was about 600 miles from Assyria, from Nineveh. So he had a long journey to go to, to fulfill his commission. But he, did not only, he didn't traverse 600 miles. He went much further than that in the opposite direction, all the way over to, we believe, Spain, to Tarshish. He disobeyed. He paid the fare, and he went down into a boat to go with them, the boat, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he's walking away from an assignment. Not a good, uh, not a good thing to do. Let's fast forward to chapter 3. Read a little bit about, you know, what happened in chapter, end of chapter 1, chapter 2. By the way, if some of you are here today saying, oh, we're preaching on Jonah. I want to hear all about the fish. Well, I, I brought a picture of the fish. No, I didn't. Uh, Jonah's not about the fish. Now, that's part of the story. Could God, the creator of, of heaven and earth, create a, a mammal big enough to swallow a person and keep that mammal from digesting him? Is that even hard for God? Of course it's not. But we can miss the point of Jonah if we just want to hear all the facts and figures and ideas and hypotheses about the fish. I don't want you to focus on the fish. I want you to focus on the, the, big, the bigger message here. What is God telling us through this life of this little lonely prophet? And so in chapter 2, Jonah's in the belly of the great fish, and he prays from the pit, from, from a pit of despair, but it's really the pit of a whale. It's remarkable. And so then chapter 3, where I want, to, want us to pick up right now, we see Jonah reluctantly going to fulfill his assignment to go to Nineveh. God saves him through that fish. Jonah could have drowned at sea. God saved him after that storm by letting that fish swallow him and keep him alive. Jonah came to his senses and he says, I'm going to go do the mission you've called me to do. So verse 1 of chapter 3, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. First time he didn't receive it. Second time, God gives it again. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk just to get around that massive area. We think it was at least 120,000 people because the scripture tells us that at the end of the book. And so verse 4, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he through the city one day's walk, and then he cried out and he said, here's the message God gave him to give to them. So it's God's prophet from Israel. They knew that there was a, that, that the God of Israel, the Assyrians knew that the God of Israel was a God to be feared. 
even though they had their own religion. They listened to him. And he says this, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the only piece of the message that we're given that Jonah preached. I don't know if his sermon was a little longer than that. That's a pretty short sermon. It's all that we're given in the scriptures of what he said. But they took it to heart. These people were ripe for repentance. They, they, they took it seriously when a prophet from a foreign land came in and preached his guts out, if you will, preached in earnest to them about their need to change, their need to look at themselves and to turn from wickedness. Because look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. That's the God of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob. That's Jonah's God. They believed in him, it says. He arose, excuse me, they, and then they called a fast and put on sackcloth, which is a sign of mourning, of grieving. And they put that on from the greatest of them to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, verse 6, he rose, arose from his throne laid himself on his robe, laid, excuse me, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. A, a real mark of inward mourning. He wasn't trying to put on some religious show. He was sorrowful, saying, we have really messed up as a nation, and I'm the king of this great nation, and I'm, I'm repentant. His actions displayed true repentance. They took God's word seriously through the prophet Jonah. Verse 7 the king issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn. Jonah's God. God, but he's the God of all of us, ultimately. God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. And then verse 10, it says that when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Chapter 4, you would think that Jonah would be saying, yippee, look what you did, Lord. That's awesome. You know, in the New Testament, uh, we're told by Jesus, none other than Jesus, that when, when one sinner repents, that there's a celebration in heaven, that the angels are rejoicing. But you think Jonah might be rejoicing? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He didn't want God to be merciful to them. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? In Israel, therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew, I knew you, I know your character, I know you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and the one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Wow. What a, what a baby. Let's just talk turkey here. What a baby. Jump down to, to verse 8. The end of verse 8. Jonah's last recorded words in the book of Jonah are right there. The end of verse 8. He says, death is better to me than life. You know, you've heard the saying, famous last words. These are, these are Jonah's infamous last words. He is just cranky. 
How would you like to be remembered by something that miserable, that the last thing that you were recorded to have said was, oh, I just want to die. That's, that's, that's the spirit of this guy, Jonah. Now, we don't want to beat up on him too bad, do we? Because, well, maybe we do, but we shouldn't. Because if we're humble people here today, if we're frank and realistic with ourselves, we know there's a little Jonah in all of us. I think there is. I'm going to need help on these slides. They've been a little, little tricky there. That, that one moved. But uh, here's a question. Are we mercy misers? He was. Do we withhold mercy when we see people that are uh, very different from us, maybe believe a lot of different things than we do? Maybe they're very uh, whatever. Maybe they don't have the same look that we do or the same skin color. Boy, what's in the heart matters. We don't want to be racist, spiritual or otherwise, and we shouldn't be. Jesus said in the New Testament that we're to love our enemies, people that don't want anything to do with him. We're to still love them. We're to care for people and not be mercy misers. We're going to find out that in Jonah's case, he was more concerned about a plant than he was about people. It's really sad. Jonah stalked to his shaded seat, and he waited for God to come around to his way of thinking. God is still waiting for a host of Jonahs in their comfortable houses to come around. I want us to think about that this morning. We are not to be uncaring about people, about the world around us. We are not to hoard the grace of God, to think it's just for us, it's not for other people. God had been so merciful to Jonah. Chapter 1, Jonah heard a call. He received a call from the Lord, a summons to go preach. He rejected it. He runs off to see, to go far away from the Lord. If God's after you, he's going to catch you. God caught him. God caught him and forgave him, really. He, he, he showed mercy to him. He could have drowned in the sea, and we'd have probably said, good, you deserve to die, Jonah, for what you did. You disobeyed the voice of the Lord. But God's more merciful than we are. He didn't let Jonah die in the sea. He saved him. That was an act of mercy and of grace. Then he recommissioned him, sent him back to fulfill the mission that he originally assigned him. Jonah goes. God blesses him. God's effectively giving his message through Jonah to those people, and they repent. What a privilege you you and I might say to be used of God, that God would use a person as a vessel to bring such good about. And yet, Jonah's angry. He's upset with, with God for what he did. So then, Jonah... Let's go look back at chapter 4 and see what he does. He's complaining about God being a merciful God. It's okay if you're merciful to me, but not to them. Think of how, how, how small-hearted he is. And so he asked the Lord to take his life, verse 3. Verse 4, the Lord says, Do you have good reason to be angry, Jonah? And then Jonah went out from the city, and he sat east of it. There, there he made a shelter for himself and sat under it, in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. After he preached the good news and there were signs of repentance, he goes out, he sits down, he gets in the shade, and you know what I believe he's waiting for? He's still hoping there'll be a grand heavenly fireworks display that God's still going to get them because they're just wicked. He hates them. He only went and preached to them because he had to because God spoke to him in the belly of a whale and says, you get it back there and do what I've called you to do. He does it, God blesses it, and he's still unhappy. And so he's groaning, he's moaning, he shelters himself. So the Lord God is being merciful to him again. He really is in what the Lord allows to happen. Overnight, some type of tree or shrub grows up and 
provides much-needed shade, respite from those hot winds. The Lord appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be, to be shade over his head, to deliver him from his discomfort. That's God's mercy to Jonah. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Ah, oh, you're finally taking care of me again. You owe that to me, you know. I'm your prophet. You should always look after me. I should always be comfortable. I should always have my needs met. But those Assyrians, I'm going to sit here in my comfort and wait for you to blast them, Lord. You know, God gave him comfort, but he doesn't leave us in our comforts, does he? He challenges us to see the mission of life again. Verse 7, but God appointed a worm. A worm. When dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered, God was over that. God was sovereignly taking away this guy's comfort factor and he was going to teach him an object lesson with it. Verse 8, when the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die. There it is again, this prophet saying, I want to die. Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? about the plant, and he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand? It means they're morally blind. And as well as many animals. A lot to learn here. Some real good takeaway lessons from, uh, from Jonah. I'm going to call it life lessons in the uh, life of a prophet. God's education of a prophet. And they're transferable to us. But I mentioned earlier, God showed a lot of mercy to Jonah. He prepared a great fish uh, to save him. That was an act of mercy on God's part. God shaded Jonah with this leafy plant after the prophet did his preaching mission. God provided a worm that destroyed the plant, and really that was a, an object lesson that we just read about. God wanted Jonah to see that people are more important than plants, that an insignificant thing, the comfort of, of living your life in the shade, is, is not, enjoy it for a moment, but then get back to work, Jonah, and realize that people matter to me a lot more than your comforts do, than your shade tree. And so enjoy the rest, but now get back to work. The lessons are, are simple. We need to care for people more than plants, or let's just call it our comforts. Comforts are great. We shouldn't live for them. We shouldn't live for them. It's easy to, to make, it, make life just be, be about that, isn't it? Really, Jonah, if you, it comes right down to it, was a vine lover. <laughs> Not a wine lover. Maybe he liked wine too. It doesn't say that, though. He loved vines. He loved the shade. He was pleased with it. And I want to say, let me say this first. I'm not saying that you're a vine lover when I make my next few points. I'm saying that any of us could become a vine lover. And I'm not addressing it in individual lives as much as my own here today. I've had to really preach this message to myself and I say, is this me at times? It's good to ask questions of oneself when you come into contact with the scriptures. Vine lovers, you know what? One thing about them is they run the other way. When God puts a mission or event before them, a, a place to serve him, they run away. Some run far away. Jonah ran far away from his mission as possible. That vine-loving prophet. 
And that's uh, Jonah 1, 1 through 3, which we read earlier. Instead of going to Nineveh, he went to Tarshish. And here's a question. Where do you spend most of your time, my friends? In Nineveh, where God's called you to live and to work and to serve him? Or in Tarshish? Something far away from what he wants you to be doing with your life. Are you pursuing God's mission or are you running away from it? That's the question. Vine lovers run away when God summons them to work for him, to do a task for him. They run away from it. And some run far away. And a second thing, I might need you to bump that slide for me. Second thing vine lovers do is they are what we might call pit prayers. Jonah chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I won't read through all those verses, but basically chapter 2 of this book records Jonah's prayer from the pit, the pit of, a, of the belly of a whale. And it's good that he prayed. And when we're in a pit of life, we should pray. When we're in a tight corner, when we're in a, we don't know which way to go, we're in a tight spot, and we get into those as believers, we should pray. But is it, beloved, it's not the only time we should pray. God wants more than that from you and me. He wants you to pray with him daily. He wants you to talk to him regularly. Not just to pray when, when you're in a tight spot. And, and, and that's, that's where we come through in prayer, where we break through. Vine lovers tend to pray with passion only when they're in the pit. That's what Jonah did. But God heard him, and God was gracious, and God was merciful. So pray always, but don't wait to just get in the pit of life before you pray. Third thing about vine lovers, they ask, what is the least I can do to fulfill my obligation? Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, which we've already referred to or read this morning, is, is the only little text we have of the sermon that he gave. And he said, Nineveh in 40 days is going to be destroyed for its wickedness unless you turn, unless you repent from it. Now, granted, Jonah's message, his sermon might have been longer than that, but he just gave them, we know that he gave them the nuts and bolts of it, and God used it. God used that simple challenge that came with the authority of heaven through Jonah to them, and he used it. But Jonah's, what did he do though? Then he backed off and just waited for God to hopefully destroy the city. His heart wasn't in it. He was there only because he had to be. Because preaching to these Assyrians who he detested was better than living in the belly of a whale. And so he comes out of the pit, reluctantly accepts the mission. He's disgusted that God is merciful to those people, and he goes and he pouts, and he prays to die. A vine lover says, that, what's the least I can do to fulfill this obligation? We don't want to live like that, Jonas, like little Jonas. Vine lovers are passionate about insignificant things. We read in chapter 4 how absorbed young Jonah was over a little stinking plant that uh, he had nothing to do with. He didn't make it grow. He didn't make it create shade. God did that. But he just wanted to live in the comfort of it. When God took it away, he's angry about it, and he wants to die again. Jonah should have been looking out over the city and saying, my goodness, 120,000 people just got saved from the fires of judgment. How amazing. But he's more focused on the plant in chapter 4 than he is on people. In fact, it's incredibly so. He doesn't want them to even to live. And so the Lord is really rebuking him at the end of the book of Jonah. And he says, you're so concerned about a little plant. But he goes, you had nothing to do with it. You have compassion on the plant, verse 10. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, verse 11, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand? as well as many animals. 
If we're focused on insignificant things, what do we call that? Making mountains out of molehills? If we focus on the wrong things in life, the wrong priorities, you know what else happens? We miss what God is doing in the world. We miss out. We miss out on the big picture of what God's doing. It hasn't been a long time since I've seen somebody come to faith in this church. It's probably one reason I keep staying here, because I keep seeing people come to faith here. I keep seeing lives changed. If that ever changes, or the gospel's really not clear, or we water it down, or we hide it, or we're ashamed of it, and people's lives aren't being changed here, I'll be the first to leave. Because that's not a church anymore. This is about life change, about transformation, about good news, coming to broken hearts. God's love and redemption pouring into people's lives, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from. I sometimes, by the grace of God, I run to some of the counseling opportunities I get, not because I'm a great counselor, because I'm not, but because in those contexts of counseling with people, I've often had opportunity to present the gospel to them. And I see it change their lives. That's what the church is about. And if we ever get focused, too focused on the wrong things, the color of the carpet, the color of what the new building's going to look like, whatever, if we're not careful, we get too absorbed about the wrong things, we're going to miss what God's really doing in this world. He'll just do it through someone else and somewhere else. So let's keep the main thing the main thing, First Baptist. Let's keep praying. Let's keep giving. Let's keep growing. Let's keep, let's, let's keep on our guard that we don't become like little Jonas. Jonah was a spoiled brat. And as God's children today, if we're not careful, we can become God's spoiled children that are just living kind of for ease or comfort or life that makes us feel good. Be careful of that. We don't grow in that context of just ease, of, some, of, of life not stretching us. We don't grow up in Jesus with, with, with just ease. God stretches us. The lessons of Jonah to wrap up, God loves to show mercy to all people to everyone, not just to you and to me and to First Baptist or to, to people that we like and that we know. He loves to show mercy to all people. He shows his mercy to us that we might show mercy to others. He didn't forsake us, so friends, let's not forsake others like Jonah did. He forsook the enemies of God, the Assyrians. He forsook them. We are to love people without boundaries, aren't we? And so you see somebody you don't even know today at a restaurant or a convenience store or a new person at work tomorrow, and, and with, the, with your, your heart centered on loving people in the way Jesus loves, you choose to love. You choose to accept them. You choose to greet them. You choose to bless them. And, and you don't put them in some weird category of, well, they're not like me or they do something I don't approve of, or no, let's not get this Jonah mentality, but let's remember God loves all people equally. He's no respecter of people. So as his people, we're to love others without boundaries. And then as we love them with words and actions, our eloquence isn't the, isn't the, 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 the key thing here. Eloquence is irrelevant. A lot of times you say, well, I don't know how to be this ambassador for Christ I don't know how to pray. I don't know how to share the gospel. You know, eloquence is irrelevant. Jonah wasn't really eloquent. He just went over there, preached to the Ninevites because God had sent him to do it, and God blessed the message through that messenger. 
Our eloquence is irrelevant. God just wants us to be faithful, to share the good news of who he is. So when you feel him summoning you to to open up your mouth and to say a good word about Jesus Christ, to share your testimony with somebody, just do it. Don't stumble and say, well, I don't know if I can say this right. I don't know, I don't know enough verses. I, I, I don't know what I'll say if there's an objection. You know, those, those, those are natural fears. But let's just overcome them and say, Lord, you don't care about my eloquence. You just care about my obedience. You'll use me. You use Jonah. You'll use us. And we're on a heaven-sent mission, beloved. God is going to use us. Let's not miss out on what he's doing in our day. You know, the time is ticking down on each of our lives here. You knew that before you came in here today, but let me remind you. We don't know how much time each of us have. I'm keeping up right now with one of our beloved senior members who went to the hospital recently and is now on hospice care. Didn't see that coming. Our days are numbered. Let's not fool around. Let's live for the king while we can. Let's love him. Let's lean into him and say, Lord, you're a God on mission. Let us continue to be a people who are on mission here. Show us how and where and when and help us not to interrupt the mission. Help us not to focus on little insignificant things, but to focus on you and your great love for this world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we pray today that we will care for the world and Lord, you don't call us to go to all the world. We're, we're just individuals. You call us to go to our part of it, to care for our part of it, to be ambassadors for Christ to our part of it, to, to be obedient and to follow you, to be people on mission. Thank you for the, the family of God that strengthens all of us to be here. I need this place. We each need this place to, to grow up in Jesus Christ. And may we seek holiness over happiness, knowing that, Pursuing you will result in something bigger than happiness, but real joy. And the joy of the Lord will be our strength. We pray this together humbly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Thank you. Thank you.